Hi, my name is Carol Selman, and I played the role of Yarina on Star Trek The Next Generation, episode Code of Honor. And you're listening to Trek Untold. to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. At the start of the season, I mentioned I did some serious digging for this next big batch of episodes on the show. My goal was to really find some of those long-lost elusive contributors of the Star Trek universe and see if I could get them to talk. Today's guest is someone whose name was at the very top of my list for a very long time, really since the show started. And that guest is actress Carol Selman. What made Carol such a hot commodity for me to have? Well, all I have to say is three words that I know will get your interest peaked immediately. And what are those three magical little words that I know is going to make you say wow? How about Code of Honor? Yeah, today Trek Untold is going there. Carol played Yurina in the much maligned first season TNG episode Code of Honor, and she was one of the centerpieces of that episode alongside two other great guest stars, Jesse Lawrence Ferguson and Julian Christopher. Now, if you don't know, Code of Honor is regarded as one of the worst, if not worst episodes of Star Trek ever. Not just TNG, I'm talking about the entire franchise, and that is a pretty wide spectrum to talk about. Not only do fans dislike it, but the entire cast of the Next Generation show has disavowed it, and have straight up said this was not a good episode, and usually they say it in much harsher words than what I just did right there. Now, I pride myself on doing research, but Carol was a mystery. Her IMDb was bare, more so than it should be. There's no interviews with her on any websites. There was one or two really tiny videos about her on YouTube, but nothing that really offered any substantial information on her, and all paths led to nowhere when it came to contacting her. But lo and behold, one day I was able to find a way, and that's why today we get to learn more about this very seasoned performer and get her side of the story when it comes to Code of Honor. This episode has a lot of truly untold tales behind it, so we definitely unearthed some real gems in this one. I had a feeling Carol was going to have a very different perspective on this episode, and I am pleased to say that she did. One that may even have you reconsider your own thoughts on it. So let's get ready to chat with a very special guest today, and a very honorable one at that, Miss Carol Selman. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. 
Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com at trekuntold and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining me on the other side of the screen, we are joined by a very special guest, someone who I've been looking forward to talking to since I started this show. We are joined today by Miss Carol Selman. Carol, how's it going? Oh, Matthew, you're flattering me. Uh, it's going great. <laughs> well, it is the absolute truth. You know, I was telling you before we started recording here, your episode of Star Trek is one that is discussed a lot today, for better or for worse, and we'll get to what's up with that. Uh, yeah. But it's one that a lot of people talk about, and, uh, you know, it's it's been on top of my list to discuss more on this show, especially with someone who's been in it. So, yeah, I cannot wait till we get to that part of the discussion, but we had a long road to get to before we talk about that. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, Carol, I'd like to kind of just kick things off with the first question I ask all my guests here. And that's, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you grow up watching it? Oh, yeah, I did. Um, you know, I think the little, let's see, the, the little animals that were on there. Do you uh, the Tribbles. What those were called? The Tribbles, yeah. That was one of my favorite episodes. So, yeah, I remember it definitely with Shatner and Yahura. And yeah, it was, I, I really enjoyed it. I was told though that that wasn't the original pilot or, you know, there was a, another one made, but they didn't have all the different ethnicities in it. And uh, Roddenberry came up with the idea of doing something different where he could have diff different ethnic groups and it worked. So, uh, but my, I guess, yeah, it's just like the original uh, episodes I watched and I loved and I dreamt of being on Star Trek one day and it happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're talking about that very first pilot that had Jeffrey Hunter originally as Captain Pike. That right. was the very first one that yeah. aired. And uh, then they redid it with William Shatner as Kirk and then eventually got Uhura as well on the bridge and a lot of things yeah. changed. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about your secret origin story, if you will, Carol. Uh, I'd love to know where you were born, who your parents were, and what they did, and what little Carol wanted to be when she grew up. Wow. Okay. I'm originally from Chicago, West Side Chicago, inner city, youngest of seven. Uh, my parents are from the South, Mississippi. Okay. Um, my father was a mechanic, and my mom, she was just, she never worked. You know, she just took care of her babies and enjoyed it. Uh, she was a loving mother and a loving father. They're both deceased, uh, who were the ideal parents, mm. you know, took us on vacations to the South to visit, you know, our relatives, made sure we had that foundation, uh, knew who our relatives, where they came from, knew our cousins, aunts and uncles. So we had a solid upbringing, you know, mm. it was beautiful. 
made sure that that spirituality was in there. They made sure we went to church every Sunday and prayed together and, you know, held the family together. And what do you want to be when you grow up at that time, if you had any idea? Mm, Yeah, I remember when I was um, in first grade saying I wanted to be a physical therapist. (laughs) And and then as time went on, uh, we did a lot of plays at my school, my elementary school. And I fell in love with the stage. You know, I liked being on stage. And then in my earlier years in high school, actually my freshman year, I got cast in a lead role in, um, let's see, I think it was Finian's Rainbow. Um, and I loved it. And I loved being on stage. I loved being in front of an audience. Uh, I love hearing the laughs, the claps from the audience. And I remember my senior year in high school, I got a, the lead and bells are ringing. And I said, yeah, this is what I really love. So I majored in it huh. you know, and at the university. I went to Northern Illinois University okay, uh, and did some, you know, productions there. Had a beautiful person that was, she was working on her um in the graduate program, uh, Cheryl Sanford, and she cast me in a lot of leads. And I said, this is what I want to do. So I transferred, though, after going to Northern Illinois University for two and a half years, I transferred to Goodman School of Drama, and which was the best thing I could have done. So I ended up... Um, being able to go with a professor who was a professor there to Europe and work. So it was a a nice journey. Yeah, that's a pretty great thing to have when you're like that young and learning acting to not just be able to perform, but be able to perform in a different country. Because I would imagine right. it's a little bit different to be performing, you know, doing something in America and the way the audiences are versus doing something in Europe or any other country and how yeah. the conversation with the stage and the audience happens. I actually got to go and work in a a satellite communist country. Uh Uh, During that time, Tito was in power in Yugoslavia. Now, today, it's Bosnia and Croatia. Uh, But I was able to go before the war. And it was a really nice experience because we went to Beograd and Sarajevo, Zagreb, um, Nice. It was was very nice. That sounds like an amazing experience. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd love to know, too, if during these formative years and when you're kind of learning acting, and especially you're doing this amazing traveling around the world to do it, too, uh, what are some lessons or maybe what's the most uh, important lesson to you that stands out in your mind that you learned during that time that you still think about today? The college days, well, actually, the college days were a challenge because it made me realize that I didn't want to be a teacher because there are a lot of teachers in my family and my sister, she got her doctorate degree and she's a teacher. She was a teacher. She's deceased also. Uh, my brother uh, got his doctorate degree and he's deceased. I have four siblings that have passed, um, but he had his doctorate degree and they all went into education. And a lot of my family members have gone into education. Uh, but I realized, you know, it's, something was missing and I said I'm at the wrong school so uh you know when you sometimes you just don't fit in (laughs) and I wasn't fitting in with the groups I didn't want to I tried joining a sorority 
uh, Alpha Kappa Alpha. And I was always at the end of the line. Hmm. I was always getting <laughs> the, the entire line in trouble. And it's because I really didn't want to be there. I was more of a creative person. I didn't, I wasn't into uh, the stickler thing, you know, following uh, the routine group. I was more of the, I wanted to be more with the creative group. Um, those who are like kind of avant-garde during that time and just different. And so I found my home, you know, in theater mm-hmm. while I was there. And I realized, I said, okay, if I feel if I feel this comfortable, then I really need to be someplace where I can really expound on my creativity. And that's why I went to the performing arts school. I was accepted. You know, I had to audition. I heard about this auditioning going on and I'm like, oh, I want to apply there. And my parents were like, hey, whatever you want to do, do it. Oh, that's really good. And, um, yeah, they were open, which was nice. Plus, being the youngest, you know, they had gone through all of this with me, with the others six. And I said, hey, go for it. <laughs> yeah, you can get away with a little bit more. The, the <laughs> siblings basically had to do all the hard work. You got it easy now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but were there like any uh, performers that you admired during this time period, whether that be on stage or on screen? Uh, yeah. Pearly Victoria. Victorious, I think it was with Ruby D and Ozzy Davis. That was hilarious. I love watching them on stage. I used to go to a lot of concerts. I used to see um, uh, James Brown on stage and Jackie Wilson on stage, you know, the Four Tops on stage. You know, people like that. And I was really, I admired that. And I remember going to see No Place to Be Somebody. Um, And when I saw that play at the Studebaker, I said, this is something I would love to do, you know, uh, professionally. Because when I went to see that play, um, I don't know, I just fell in love with that theater. And I remember the professor at Northern Illinois University went with me to see see the play. And um, I... We we went on stage and we, we were able to look at some of the uh, the scenery on stage, and I ended up years later working at that theater in Godspell, that same theater. And I like, wow, you know, my here's another dream coming true. You know, I played the vamp in Godspell, and years before, you know, like I said, I was there watching the play at that at that theater. Yeah, I'd like to actually talk a little bit about your theatrical career before I, I pick your brain about a few TV shows that you worked on. Because, uh, you know, the one thing I do about the show is I'm big on the research. And, yeah, you know, I look at someone's IMDb, and yours, I'm pretty sure it's, like, missing a ton of things. Uh, but I also feel like a lot of your work has been in the theater, right? So I'd love if you could just kind of, like, run down, um, let's say, some of the more uh, important roles to yourself that you did in the theater world that you'd like our audience to kind of know about and know a little bit more about you through what you did. Oh, um, well... It's a big loaded question, isn't it? Yeah. What I did is during the, because, you know, during the 70s, um, we did a lot of, I would say, type of poetry, you know, and it was like when the revolution comes, things like that. Uh, We talked about the times that were, detrimental during that time because you know you had um Martin Luther King 
was, you know, had been assassinated. And then Kennedy and uh, John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy. Uh, we had Malcolm X who was assassinated. So this was all going, you know, on. And so I, I was doing that type of, of theater, you know, uh, poetry. Uh, it was called, um, I would say, written poetry, you know, and it was, it was, yes, it was very beautiful. And also the type of work, James Baldwin, you know, mm-hmm. his his plays. Uh, we did things by Lorraine uh, Hansberry, you know, um, so it was, um, I did um, a play that was called Living Fat. And um, it was one that, um, I'm trying to think of his, uh, he did a lot of comedies. He did like different, different strokes. He was the producer of that. I can't remember his name, but he, he was one of the ones that helped produce this particular play. Okay. And it dealt with the South and, and it was called Living Fat, which I which I enjoyed. So it was, uh, I did a, a play called Sisters, and that had to deal with um, the problems, you know, relationships with the black woman and the black man. Um, that was a very good. That was in uh, L.A., so that was a good experience. I did uh, uh, a play at the Happy Medium, and. Um, that was I Can't Cope. Do you remember? I don't know if you know that, but it was a, a musical. Uh, that was fun. And I remember doing two shows a day. We did one uh, in the afternoon and we did one at, at midnight because uh, it was at a dinner club. Oh, Norman Norman Lear. Oh, Norman Lear. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was the one that... Uh, I should have known that too. I feel ashamed I didn't remember that. <laughs> oh, that's okay. He was the one that... Uh, was uh, producing the one called Living Fact, oh, and, okay. which I which I enjoyed doing. What attracted me to acting was during that time. See, okay, when I was twelve years old, my father was in an accident. He was like getting in his vehicle, and he was struck by a truck. So physically, he went through a lot. You know, during that time. And so growing up, seeing him going through uh, physical pain, uh, acting was kind of an escape. Okay. You know, uh, so it was, um, yeah, it was an escape. But it was also something that was uplifting that I could bring back to the family. Hmm. You know, Uh, so times were not that easy because he was able to, when we were younger, he was the breadwinner and making as you know, he owned his own business, um, very productive. And then all of a sudden this happened. So things changed and I had to start as start working at an early age, uh, to pay for my education, help pay for the education, because we went to they wanted to make sure that we had the best education. So we went to private schools, uh, we went to the Catholic schools. And so I went 12 years at a parochial school, but I started paying my t- help, helping to pay the tuition because my father, you know, just couldn't do it anymore. So um, acting was a way to have fun, <laughs> you know. Don't have to worry about the problems. Don't have to worry about being ill right now because I can be in another world. 
So it was yeah. escapism for you, but also kind of just, I guess, giving you a voice to explore other things you probably couldn't normally explore, right? Well, also growing up in sh- Chicago in the inner city, uh, and we did travel, as I said, we did travel to the South. I did get involved in modeling uh, Bernadine C. Washington. It was like a radio station and this lady was on and she wanted to work with the um, inner city children. And so I got into this, anything that came along, I was in it, you know, so I got into this modeling group and at 16, I got to go to Canada, Montreal, uh, went to the expo. And so I got a chance to, to see that particular area of the country. But outside of that, I hadn't really traveled except from Montreal and then, uh, Windsor, Canada, and then to the South. You know, Mississippi and Tennessee, um, southern part of Illinois. So with the acting, this allowed, you know, me to to travel, you know, and do things. So So how does Carol make her way to Hollywood? <laughs> I was doing Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope. That's, uh, was it, Vanessa? I'm trying to think of her first name, but the last name was Carol. She was uh, the writer of that. And... There were uh, other actors who were in the production. Okay, Godspell had closed. And actually, I got the two plays at the same time. After I got back from Europe, I auditioned for both of them and uh, was called in, you know, for both. And I decided to take Godspell first, which I did for eight months. And then when I did Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, uh, a lot of the people who were there prior had gone to California. So some of my friends were in California. And I'm like, California? <laughs> you know, I, was like, I thought it would be something nice because when I went to the theater, you know, sitting, watching films, and during that time, there were so many Black exploitation films. <laughs> Superfly! And uh, I just... Quite a few. And I thought, I always would say to myself, I can do that. Brenda Sykes, I saw her in a, a film. And I thought, hmm, if she can do it, I can do it. So I went to, um, went to my parents and I told them, I said, hey, you know, I want to go to California. And my father always wanted to live in, in California. And of course, he wanted to move the family there, but my mom, you know, she wasn't too gone home about it. And then my father, as I said, he got uh, struck by the, that truck. So when I brought up the idea of moving to California, my father's eyes just lit up because I guess, I guess he said, wow, this is, this is my dream to be able to go, you know, to California. Um, so I moved to California and I stayed with some relatives in Pasadena. I just loved it. You know, I says, wow. And my aunt, she was just like into it also because she had some sons who she wanted to get involved in acting. So I was her dream come true for the family. And she would help. She helped me as far as searching for an agent, which I'm looking for now. I'm looking for a new agent. Uh, But she helped me and I kind of helped her and her two sons. So we were all in it together. And you know, uh, so I got to California. 
And according to IMDb, I don't know if this is accurate, but IMDb says that your very first role was in film with Sidney Poitier, James Earl Jones, and Bill Cosby, which was... Uh, do I have that right? Actually, my first one was Mother Jugs and Speed. Yeah, okay, that's right. Mother, yes, I got to mix up. I think I'm, I'm talking about piece of the action. Yeah, you're right. My first one was Mother Jug and Speed. So that, that had uh, Bill Cosby in it also, right? Yes, it did. Yeah. And, to it, you know... I this is interesting and this is something I can tell actors who are stage actors because I grew up on the stage okay and my gestures were big so when I did that scene my gestures were too big you know and I remember I I don't know if this was an AD or whatever but she pulled me aside and she said bring your gestures down you know just bring them in I went, okay so I did. And then when I saw it, when people see the scene, if you look at Mother Jackson's speed, I don't say anything, but you do see me, <laughs> you know. They have me, but they, my gestures were too big. Mm. So I thought, oh man, I'm never gonna work again. And sure enough, the next year, Bill Cosby saw me and he goes, you little devil, you know, because Sydney really liked what I was doing. You know, I, I learned over that year and uh, I was up for this role. And so was his daughter. Uh -huh. And I got the part. And he told me, he said, you know, I had to make a decision here between you and my daughter. And I, and I chose you and I like, ah, thank you. Yeah, I'd love to actually hear uh, any stories you have about working with Sydney, because that's someone who, you know, we've had a chance to talk about once or twice in this show. But I really, really enjoy hearing stories about him. Uh, so what, what do you remember about oh, being involved with him? Wow, fantastic person, fantastic personality, such a gentleman, um, loved comedy also. People see him as a serious actor. but He's so he good just, at comedy, too. He had, yeah, he just allowed us to have fun. And he said, some of you are going to be stars, you know. And, um, it was nice. And working with James Earl Jones, you know, was really nice. He's very quiet. He didn't say much. Bill actually didn't say too much either. But Sydney would talk to you, you know, and things like that. He was very nice. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting, too, to hear that you basically, you know, you just come into Hollywood and you book a gig in Bill Cosby movie with Sydney Poitier, with James Earl Jones. I mean, these are like not just luminaries of black cinema, but just cinema as a whole. And like, that, that's a heck of a way to get started in the industry. You do it because... You don't have any fear. You just, you're doing it because you, you studied your craft. You know, I had studied, you know, I went to, to the schools and I had a foundation and I knew that. Uh, and I would always say to myself when I went on audition, I'm going to do better than that person. And I know it, you know, I would, that's the kind of mentality. I, you know, it was like, I'm just going to get the job. I had no doubt that I wasn't going to get the job. So, and I got it. And I want to talk about too, uh, something else I was able to find that you were in, which uh, thankfully it's streaming on Hulu right now. Uh, you were in an episode of Hill Street Blues from season one. <laughs> yeah. I'm going way back yeah. here now. We're in the 70s. I think maybe this was oh, like end of the 70s or 81 or something. But yeah, I just was able to watch that whole episode. And uh, yeah, that's what a, what a good time. That's what a good role, show to be on. That's the role of the role of Billy in Film yep. at 11. Yeah, that was really nice. Tori Blake. Yeah, that was nice. I, I enjoyed that. Um I remember, you know, the scene where I'm running down the street with the bag. Yep. <laughs> I was running and I didn't stop running because he didn't say, they didn't say cut. 
I ran down to the end, you know, and they were laughing. I just, because I was like, I was gone. (laughs) And at that time, you know, you have that youth and you need to, you could run forever, but that was fun. I wish I could run forever still, but yeah, not anymore. (laughs) And George Sanford Brown, he was an excellent director. Hmm. Excellent. Now, I also read somewhere that, uh, and I couldn't find this on your IMDb, so I wasn't able to quite track down uh, what your role was in it, but I read that you were in Roots. Is that true? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and that one, too. I don't know why. You know, it was like, it was a small part, and I did have a small line, but they put my line on the cutting floor. Uh, so what, those what episode were you in? Um, what episode were you supposed to be in, I should say? Which episode? You know, I don't remember the episode, but you see me. You do see me. Okay. Uh, but I don't say anything, you know, it's like, um, it was with, uh, Leslie Uggams the day she was there and Ben Vereen was there also, uh, Marvin Chomsky was the director on that, but it was like very small, but I, you know, I put it on my credits cause I said I did it and I'm, I'm proud I was in it and you can talk to the director. He'll tell you I did it. But those were the two, uh, Mother Jugs and Speed and Roots. My lines were cut, and then uh, the small part, you know, like, I go like, gee, am I really going to, are they really going to see me in film? Am, am, am I really going to be seen? And that's when Sydney cast me, and I go like, okay, yeah. <laughs> so if, if people are out there and their lines are cut or they're put on the cutting floor, don't give up. You know, just... Keep going because it happens. Now, when you're in L.A. and you're doing acting on screen, are you also still performing in theater in Los Angeles? You know, I haven't performed in theater for a while, which I would like to uh, to do do something, you know, on stage again. That would be nice. Uh, I was doing some things like Harriet Tugman, just going around doing improvisational things at um, – at some schools, which I thought was really nice to, you know, to inform children about history. And I did that, and that was nice. You know, it was like I was traveling around doing that. But as far, and I worked with, uh, which I love doing uh, special needs children because on the side, I worked for LAUSD, you know, as a special ed. Uh, in the special ed department. And I worked with children, you know, who are autistic, uh, who have Down syndrome, uh, who have um, Tourette's, um, you know, EM problems, you know, emotionally disturbed problems, but mostly uh, in, in the plays that we, the, the children were cast in, um, I would say most were autistic and we did some productions like a a full wide production. And and I was like able to direct them. And that to me was so rewarding, you know, to be able to work with the special needs children. I like doing that. Um, That was, that was really nice. You know, that was very rewarding. Yeah. It takes a special kind of person to be able to do that. So thank you for doing that. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I like doing social type of work, you know, even though I'm not a social worker, like I, uh, spend time like going to the motion picture fund and visiting 
the the people who have Alzheimer's, huh. you know, and those who are sick, I give them like the Eucharist and, you know, I like to pray with them, you know, spend time with them. So, yeah, I like doing things like that. That's important. There was one thing that you uh, did mention. There was something um, called JJ Starbucks. Did you see that? I don't know if I saw that. No. Oh, man, that was so much fun. If you ever get a chance, look at that. Um, it's uh, I got to go to Canada with that. And Dale, I think it's Dale Robertson. He was like an old actor. He played uh, in this one. He played this billion. He was either a billionaire or a billionaire. And something happened to his family. So he ended up being a fl- philanthropist and went around helping people. And I played this um, con artist. J.J. Starbuck, you you would like it. Well, the reason why I'm bringing it up is I actually, this was a, a leap for me. I They dug six feet in the ground and they put a casket six feet in the crown, in the ground. And see, this guy ends up killing me. So I actually had to get in a casket six feet in the ground and they they closed it. The director yells, are you okay? And I go, yeah, as long as you open the, the lid to this, don't keep me down here. So that was that was interesting. That was fun, though. Yeah, that was the same year as uh, Star Trek TNG also, I believe, 87. Okay, all right. Yeah. yeah. So if you ever get a chance, watch that, J.J. Starbuck. I'm going to have to now to see you. You'll, make, you'll like that's, it. Make sure you get out alive in that episode, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you'll like it. I want to ask you one other thing, too, before we go into our Star Trek talk here. I wanted to ask you about a film you did in 2009. That's The Soloist with, with Jamie oh, Foxx and Robert Downey yeah. Jr. Yeah, so Robert I saw you listed as Homeless Woman number one, I think. But I'd love to hear what you can remember from that uh, from that day you were working on it and who you worked with. Uh, I worked with Jamie Foxx and Robert Downey Jr. that day. Uh, we were whew, That was interesting because we were down on, on uh, Skid Row downtown. Mm-hmm at night and I was shocked it looked like a war zone there are it's really I mean people just don't know so many homeless people you know I mean it's just like like sardines yeah you know and I'm like what and I was, you know, I was talking to different people, you know, and they were happy and everything. But I said, we got the lights on and it's really bright out here now. I said, well, what is this like at nighttime? You know, so these are things that, and I, I mean, of course, it's more now because, of, you know, the problems that we're having, um, a lot of people because of, of COVID and everything, you know, have lost their jobs. Now things are starting to pick up again. You know, I, I'm happy about that. But um, California, you know, the homeless problem that we're having is just something that we really need to be concerned about. And, uh, you know, and put our efforts into trying to uh, to help get people off the street. And that they're working on it, but we have to work harder, you know. And I like to put a plug in too. I'm gonna before we go, we talk about something else. I like to put a plug in for people who are going through something physically, like cancer. If you don't mind me talking about that, yeah, sure, because, go for it. Because I had cancer, I had breast cancer, 
And so uh, I think it's very important for me to talk about it because uh, my sister passed away from breast cancer. My brother passed away from prostate cancer. So, and I have what's called, and I'm going to, I have to say this because I have something that's called the BRCA gene and it's the BRCA2 gene. And a lot of uh, African-American women are familiar with that. But it's usually, see, my last name is Selman and I do have some Jewish German heritage. So I was asked, uh, did I have any uh, Latin or Jewish heritage? And I said Jewish because a lot of Eastern uh, Jewish women have it. And I think, I think it might be because of the Holocaust, you know, living in those concentration camps. I don't know, but it could have been the the diet, you know, lack of nutrition. And what happens is a lot of people, African-American women, don't go and get uh, mammograms. They don't realize they have uh, the BRCA gene. And I have to say this to all women, you know, Um, do your self-exams. It's very important because I had early detection. Uh, But I have the BRCA gene. So the BRCA gene is something different. When you have the BRCA gene, um, your chances of a new cancer forming are very high. So... I'm here today because I took aggressive, you know, steps. Uh, and I learned from my sister. She didn't know about the BRCA gene. And I learned from my my aunts. Some of them passed away, you know. Uh, but I'm just putting that out there. I'm alive today. I'm healthy. Um, I do walking. I do hiking. I hike up 1,100 feet, you know. In the morning, in the mornings or evenings, I put in my four miles. So it's very important. So those of you who are out there, and if you're not even, if you don't have breast cancer, if you just have cancer, period, know that I'm here for you. Uh, I, I'm supportive. I'm one with you, and uh, I'm praying for you. And don't give up. Okay, I'm going to say that. Well, that's, that's a great message. I'm going to say to untap that, you know, early detection is very important because I have a lot of family members who have had cancer and they've all for the most part gotten over it. Um, but I want to also add in, in regards to breast cancer, you know, it's it's very important for women to check that. And it's I know weird for a guy to be saying that. But I also want to say on top of that, you know, for men as well, it is important to check yourself for that as well. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm going to just shout out to my, my girlfriend because her dad had breast cancer and it's very rare, but it does happen to men too. So for any guys out there who are listening, you know, if you ever notice a lump or something abnormal, get it checked out. Don't wait. Right. Yeah, definitely. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., 
with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Hey, I'm Licia Nav, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG. And now, Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row, and from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, t-shirts, things to keep people warm. So we just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein, and a way to clean themselves, especially during Corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly who have a really hard time getting to services. We do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% tax deductible and if you click on the donate button you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autographed picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lord X or Total Recall where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars and uh, that's the x-rayed version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org Ensign, I mean, Captain Sonia Gomez, signing off. So, Carol, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion now. This is going to be a hot one here. So, we are talking the fourth episode, fourth episode of the first season of The Next Generation. Yeah, we're going way back for this one here. And that episode is Code of Honor. Mm -hmm. You are Yurina. So, let's start at the beginning here. How did you get cast for this role? Do you remember the audition process? Yes, I do. I remember I went in... Um, I had on this, it was like, it had a little gold trimming to it and it had a collar. I thought I was trying to make it look like something Star Trek-y that I had seen, you know, growing up, right? And Junie Lowry was casting. And I remember reading and she looked at me and I said, oh, can I, can I read it again? <laughs> Because I like, I was thinking to myself, I didn't read that right. And she said, no. She says, what I would like you to do is go and get something sexy to put on, sexier to put on. You know, and I'm like, sexier to put on. Okay. 
you know? So I was thinking about the women, you know, the Shatner hat, you know, and, and sometimes he'd have these romances with these women and they'd have on these little outfits and everything. So I went to Frederick's of Hollywood <laughs> and I got this sexy outfit, you know, and I had these black tights on. So I said, now this looks like one of those sexy women that I saw on Star Trek when I was growing up. And I went in and uh, Russ Mayberry, the director, was there. And I, I'm not sure. I don't think Gene Roddenberry. No, he wasn't there at that time. But uh, I remember Judy was sitting to the right and she looked, she was like really shocked when I came in. Because at that time, I think I was weighing about 103, very small. I'm right now, I'm still small. I'm uh, like one, I think I'm like 113, 114 right now. So I've gained a few pounds, but not that much. Um, and I remember having to walk down towards them. I walked down as I was saying my lines, you know, with this, this strut, you know, just really trying to be like a Star Trek woman, you know. <laughs> and... I got the part. It was just me and this other person that I used to see on auditions a lot. And they called both of us in. And she looked at, she was like, whoa, what is she wearing? You know, like, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> so you booked the gig. You're going to be on Star Trek. Hooray. Uh, and now they send you the script for the first time, the first full script. So you have a read through of this thing. What do you think about the episode? And what do you think about the material that was in it? You know... <laughs> I thought, okay, this is an all-black planet. You know, wow, this is pretty cool. And I said, this is a, a queen of a planet. And I thought about Africa because there's some, there was, you know, if you look back in history, women uh, were, you know, the African women were in charge in some areas. You know, they were queens and they owned the land. So I'm thinking Russ Mayberry did his homework here. Because this is this has some facts to it, you know. You look at the Nubia queens, you know, in Egypt and all that. And, but I'm thinking, yeah, you know, uh, they did own the land. And as you see at the end, Urena, she chooses the other one as her, you know, to take over and to be her first one, you know. So I thought. It was well written, but then I hear I, I heard this one critique of this person saying, "Oh yeah, and here's this white woman going after you know this black man liking him, and this is um, you know Denise Denise Cosby, Lieutenant Yar, and I'm like, yeah, but I mean this is what you know." Russ was like writing about, I mean, not Russ, but Gene Roddenberry was saying, making a statement there. And what he was showing was that you can be attracted to another race. You can be an official or, 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 or in a position uh, that's well respected and have natural feelings for someone who's very different from you. You know, and then there's that part where, hey, there could be, there's a, a lady, a queen who could be jealous, who has affection, who has a heart, 
who cares? And she's going to fight for what she wants, you know? And it may not be, you know, uh, no, she's not going to be calm about this. She's going to go after, you know, what she wants. So I, G was just, you know, and he was making it interesting. And I got to see him, you know, I got to stand next to him. And he asked me, he says, you know, how are you doing? And I said, you know, I, I'm having a good time. I'm really enjoying it. Um, there was a little, I don't know, you were, you know, there was some friction on the set. Not during my time. Well, yeah, during my time. Um, oh, well, do tell. I got to hear about this. Okay, you got to hear about this. Well, I'm not going to mention the actor. There was one actor that felt that Russ Mayberry, the director, didn't identify Hmm. With 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 the uh, the black cast, so it was like some little tension there. And after that particular day, Patrick Stewart. See, I wasn't on the set when um, some things went down. I guess, uh, but I did come on when the or verbally there was something said. To Russ Mayberry, letting him know that you're not working with us. You know, you're not treating us like equals, human beings, you know. Um, and maybe he wasn't familiar with working with an all-black cast. I don't know. Uh, which he shouldn't have seen any difference anyway. You know, actors are actors. Um, but Patrick Stewart was very, very nice. Uh, he he took us all out to lunch after that. You know, those of us who had um, some the leads in 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 Star Trek, and then some others. I remember he was sitting at the table. Yeah, he just took us all out because you know he felt um, he might have felt too that there was something there that was missing and that Russ Mayberry didn't understand. Uh, but Patrick Stewart is a gem. He's he's a he is a special person. Yeah, Very I mean, nice person. you know, I, I actually interviewed a gentleman who we worked with, Ron Canada, on this show, and I, I forgot to ask him about this. Hopefully, one day I'll remedy that. But you know, um, when Patrick Stewart did Othello, you know, and he was the only white person in the show, and everybody else, all the other characters, played by black actors. I mean, that kind of tells you a lot about who this person is. Uh, and it's, I imagine, it's controversial. It was a controversial choice back then. It still is probably a major point of controversy, but. Uh, it's just a fascinating thing that, you know, here's this guy who really has a lot of empathy and uh, he, he tries to find ways to show it. Yes, he does. And he did show it. So, yeah. And I want to say, too, you know, we're going to get into this a little bit deeper as we, we chat, uh, you know, because I want to do talk about the politics and kind of a lot of the, the discussion about the show. But, you know, one of the biggest reasons I wanted to get you on this in particular is because I had a feeling you're going to have just a completely different viewpoint. And even what you just said about, like, the, the woman in power making her choices, like, I never considered that point of view before. So I love that you're giving us this today. So uh, thank you for that. You're welcome. Well, that's how I was able to portray the character. You know, that's, that's how I saw her. Um, I always respected uh, women who were in authority in Africa, even though I have, I don't know who my ancestors are in Africa, but I feel that they were some powerful women. <laughs> I've only just met you, but I would say yes to that. I would agree. Uh, so, you know, let's talk a little bit about your outfit. And, you know, you do have many outfits because you go through a lot of costume changes here. So tell me about hair, makeup, and wardrobe. What was it like for you to become Yorina? Transformation. 
It was very nice. Uh, once you're sitting, I remember, okay, the, the one where I said, um, it is my right. And that, uh, I think it was, man, like a lace type. It was just, it was like a flowing type of gown that I had on. And sitting there on the throne, like next to Jesse Ferguson, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you get in character with these outfits, you know, because you're adorned, you know, you feel, you really do feel that you, you, you are that, that character. And I was talking to somebody about that. Um, Brendan Fraser, my sister was saying he had to uh, gain all this weight for this character that he's playing. Yeah. And the whale. Uh-huh. And I said, you know, when you do that, it helps your character, you know, because you, you step outside of who you are and you are this because you have this transformation and with the clothes that you wear, with the props that you're given, it helps to enhance, you know, even though you know that you've worked on your character, but the costume, it just puts the, the layer on it, you know, the finishing touch on it. Uh, so. I like the makeup was really heavy and everything. The gavelin that I had to use when I was fighting, you know, Denise. <laughs> oh, something interesting about that. So anyway, yeah, it definitely helped. And that um, jumpsuit type that I wore, you know, during the fighting, it was loose and everything, you know, fitted tight. But it was I was able to move in it nicely. But what happened in the gavel, I don't want to give away because if I tell you exactly what it was made of, people will say, oh, no. <laughs> but uh, the beams, you know, those four beams. Yeah. I didn't know they were glass. Oh, I was going to ask you about that. In fact, yeah, because I was wondering about that fight scene. It's like I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but that's like, you know, you guys are having basically a fight in a jungle gym with neon tubes. It's crazy. I did, I did not know they were glass. And. The choreographer, the, the stunt choreographer, when he was, you know, working, when we were working, we were working on another, uh, it was, we were working, okay, it wasn't the one that was on the set, but there was another one, the model of it, that we were able to work on. And he did the choreography, and it went fine. Okay, when I was working with Denise, what happened was when you're really working with the person that you're fighting with, you kind of move, you know, you, you, you gear into character and the choreography is there, but you get more into it. And when I made this turn, my foot hit the step and I fell into the beam and it just shattered. And I heard somebody yell, close your eyes, close your eyes. And that glass just went all over us. Oh, wow. So, and I saw Denise later on on the plane, she was coming back, she was flying back, and I, I saw her, and she said, hey, how you doing? I said, fine. She said some of that glass had gotten into her eye, and it started coming, protruding out later on, and just a little bit. So anyway, that's something that you guys don't know. So we were actually fighting, you know, of course, not hurting each other, but yeah. We, that's you're wild. Doing, yeah, when you're doing stunt stuff, it you can have an accident easily. <laughs> which I did. 
And yeah, I want to talk more a little bit about Denise as well, but I actually want to talk about, uh, before we get into that, you know, I, I want to really honor our, the guest stars in this episode, uh, Jesse Lawrence Ferguson, the late Jesse Fer- Ferguson, oh, and, uh, yeah. and Julian Christopher as well. You know, I'd love to hear uh, what it was like to work with those two guys. Very nice. Jesse was, oh man, his voice. Yeah. Um, it was very nice to work with both of them. You know, um, yeah, I miss Jesse very much. You know, he he got out of the business altogether and started teaching. Yeah. And, you know, it was interesting. We both had the same agent, Don Gurley, at that time. We both had the same agent and we were both cast, you know, so it was good. The, Someone was looking out for us, you know, and I didn't even know him prior to that, you know, and I didn't even know we were with the same agent, you know, so it was nice. I'll tell you, a person that is really nice and went out of his way to be nice to me, it was, man, no, I can't think of it. <laughs> I was going to tell you, was, with the glasses. LeVar Burton? LeVar, LeVar, yeah, I don't know, I, I could think of LeVar. <laughs> so nice. LeVar is so nice. Yeah. I mean, he went on to direct a lot of episodes of Star Trek as well. But this is, you know, young, young LeVar, basically, I feel like at that time period, too, that, you know, the, the producers were taking a big risk bringing LeVar in because he really, I felt like, was having a lot of hard time finding his place after Roots. Uh, so, you know, he got, he got him now on Star Trek Next Generation. It's a pretty big deal for him. So, yeah, how was he, uh, you know, season one, Geordie LaForge, if you will? What was it like to, to be around young LeVar? He was so down to earth. You know, he's just... Uh... Just LeVar, you know, just yeah. down to earth, you know, just come up to you and sit, talk to you and joke with you, you know, just everyday person. Very nice. That's how he is. He's just a down to earth person, you know, like Patrick Stewart, down to earth person, you know, Gene Roddenberry was down to earth person. Um, Sidney Portier, same thing. Wow, that's really cool that, yeah, to hear that. Regular people, just regular, just really nice people. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd love to hear, too, if you have any other stories about Gene, because, uh, you know, again, this is very early days of Star Trek TNG. Season one, we're talking here. So, I mean, he had very much a lot of say at this point in the series, and that would change pretty quickly by season two. Uh, so He didn't, yeah. he didn't interfere. Gene, I mean, he, he stood back. He didn't come on. No, he, he was out of the picture. You know, I, I just saw him like offset, you know, and we, we just exchanged, you know, a few words there. All I know is I looked up at him and I'm like, ooh, this guy is tall. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty tall. But just nice person, you know. Yeah. All all everybody on on that set, you know, was was friendly. Yeah. And, you know, I, did, I did mention we're going to come back to Denise, so I want to go into that right now, in fact, because, you know, you already mentioned that you two just trauma bonded over the shattered glass. But other than other than that horrible, horrible situation, I mean, how was Denise? Did you enjoy working with her? Uh-huh. Yeah, she was right on it. We were right on it. I remember that scene that we had when, when I walked in, you know, and I was telling her, you know, letting her know that we were going to have this duel and everything and that she was on my planet, you know. I uh, says now now you're on our you're on my planet now, and then I walk out and the door shuts and uh, we did one take on that that was it, huh. you know one take. Um, so she was she was right on top of it. I was too. And like I say, the fight scene we had fun doing that. Um, yeah, I would I would have loved to work with her on something else. You know, yeah, it was it was nice. 
I gotta tell you too, I love the line that you delivered to her at one point, which is, uh, you know, the truth is I will kill you if I can. And believe me, <laughs> I can. You do. Oh man, that was, that was good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that was acting. <laughs> I would do me. that to me. <laughs> But yeah, yeah and, and again, we talked about this fight scene already a little bit too, but I'm curious, you know, how much of it on screen, you know, when we actually see the episode, how much of that fight scene is actually you and Denise doing it versus stunt doubles doing it? Um, most of it, uh, when the person jumps up, that's, that's a stunt. And then I, I could have done all that. They just sign away and let me do it. And then when she's down on the, on the ground and she's going like this, that's that I could have done that. I think they just wanted to give somebody some work. I appreciate it, you know, but, you know, she's a little bit, you can tell too, because she's a little bit heavier than I am. <laughs> you know, but uh, I appreciate what she did. I really do, you know. Uh, but I guess I'm like Tom Cruise. I like doing my own. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I got to press you on this one again because you mentioned it earlier. You know, uh, the the secret weapon that you use, whatever they called it. I mean, the javelin. So... The javelin. Okay, yeah. the javelin. Yeah. So, are you are you going to keep the secret? Are you going to tell us what it's made out of, or is that going to be forever uh, well, you know in the grave with you? Well, do you want me to tell you? Do you oh, want I want to know. That's what this show is, man. We got to dig deep. What well, dig deep? It was okay. The javelin. Those thorns that were sticking out. The nails are sticking out. They're rubber. <laughs> <laughs> The secret's out there, folks. You you aren't going to get poisoned by really touching them. They're just rubber. Yeah. But, you know, I throw it. You know, I I throw it. And and the person catches it. You know, they're not going to catch it in nails, you know. Yeah. (laughs) I I love that scene, too. How that guy just, like, keels over. He's like, oh, well, I'm dead now. Goodbye. (laughs) Actually, that guy that did that, I didn't realize. He was from Chicago, and he grew up a block away from where I I, I grew up. (laughs) Wow, that's a small world. (laughs) I know, yeah. And, you know, just to let you know, too, I was looking up uh, Russ Mayberry after you mentioned his name. I wanted to see, you know, what else he did. And he didn't actually do, uh, well, he only did the one Star Trek. That was it. Only, he never got called back to do it again. He just did that one episode, and then he why? didn't do it after. Now you know why. That's, yeah, that's interesting to know. So, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, you know, overall, though, it sounds like you had a really positive experience filming this thing. Oh, yeah. I wanted us to do it again. You know, I wanted, I said, why haven't they called our us back? You know, I wanted it. Yeah, I said they're calling a lot of other people back. Why not us? Yeah. So, did you watch the episode when it first aired on TV? Yeah, yeah, because all my friends were rooting for me, you know, at home, and they, yeah, I like watching my work, you know. So, like the first time you watched uh, your episode of Star Trek, what did you think of it? I laughed. <laughs> In a good way or a bad way? In a good way, because it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of laugh at things that I do, you know, because I mean, they're these serious, you know, parts and I'm back to all, you know, and I don't, I'm really, you know, not like that, but it's good. I like character uh, parts. I always thought of, you know, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, um, you know, and, and I like those scenes that they play, you know, that were really out there. You know, and I like characters like that. So, yeah, they they always intrigued me. It's a pretty cool feather in your hat as well to have in your resume that you did Star Trek. And you did Star Trek TNG Season 1, which is, you know, a pretty big thing. And and did you you ever think you would actually get yourself in a Star Trek show? No. (laughs) No, of course not. 
I mean, you know, you imagine things in your mind. Uh, you picture things. You 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 see. You know, you you go see a movie and you go you you see yourself in that care. You know, in that character, and you have fun. I'm like, I'm I'm a kid in the inner city of Chicago looking at TV. You know, looking at Captain Kirk. You know, uh, Lieutenant Yuhura. You know, and uh. Little Nimoy, I'm looking at him, you know, Spock with the ears. I'm like, oh, wow, that's fun, you know. Um, no. So this is the part of the conversation, Carol, where things get a little bit more serious. Because, you know, as I mentioned, uh, this is an episode that a lot of folks talk about today. And it's not always for the most positive reasons. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, so you know where this is headed already. Uh, you know, I, I hate to do this yeah. to you, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to first off know, I mean, because, you know, I was like three when this came out. So what was the reception like back when this first aired, if you can remember? I mean, did you hear, was this episode talked about that much? Yeah, people loved it. Yeah, okay. People I knew. Yeah. I mean, all loved it. And then later on in life, I heard people say, ooh, whoa, that wasn't the best episode, you know? And uh, I'm going like, it wasn't? <laughs> I go, Okay. And I'm like, why? Why not? You know, but but we loved you. We loved you. You know, and I'm like, okay. You know, I would go to like went to um the um like you know signing, and uh, people would say, well, I've been looking for you for years. You know, why don't you come to these more often? You know, and I go, oh, I don't know. You know, like Michelle, she was the one that I went to, yeah. and. I I just told them, well, I, I don't go to a lot. Well, we like you. We weren't we didn't really like the episode, but we really did like you. And I go, okay, you know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I was kind of shocked that they didn't like the episode. But like I said, when I did it, my friends loved it. You know, I loved it. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of disappointing because, like, you know, you were really good in it. Jesse Lawrence Ferguson was great. I mean, Julian Christopher, everybody did a great job. Uh, but, you know, and even not necessarily just looking at by purely today's standards, even like 10, 15 years ago, even, you know, it's very, very much a negative way just because of the stereotypes, I think, that it showed. It's like, you know, here's this futuristic time and here's this futuristic civilization. But for some reason, they're all dressed like like they're basically doing an off-Broadway production of Aladdin. You know, like it's it's kind of weird in that regard, too. And. Uh, you know, they're doing like, like they're, they're banging sticks together to play music. I mean, there's a lot of tribal roots in it, but it comes off also in like, you know, good intentions, maybe bad execution. So, I mean, what's your take on, on how it is today? I mean, what do you think about the material? I, you know, you got to look at when it was written. I didn't think of it that way. I mean, I love my costume and, uh, people think the cost, I mean, we weren't going around with bones in our nose and, uh, you know, little wraps around us and jumping up and down, you know, like that. Um, no, I thought we were pretty sophisticated. You know, um, we were speaking intelligently. I mean, you look at costumes, period. Look at the costumes in, in, in on Star Trek. Why is ours any different from anyone else's, you know? I mean, if you want to get nitpicky about it, um, you can't. Everybody's it's it's people's own perspective, you know. You, you hear the sound of the drums, you know, clanging together. I thought that was a beautiful sound. If you perceive it as being stereotyped, you know, if people perceive it as being that way, then so be it. You know, that's okay. You know, you're looking at it to me from not from 
the creative, as I mentioned before, you got to look at the history of the African woman. And Jesse, you got to admit, Jesse was very uh, strong and forceful. Yeah, very commanding presence. He was very charismatic, uh, very intelligent, and forthright about what he was doing. And James was also, you know, supporting him, being assistant to him. There wasn't any friction between them. There wasn't any arguments between us. Everything was orderly. There was no chaos. And I like the costumes. You know, I I would love to have my jumpsuit type, you know. (laughs) But, you know, people are going to look at it, you know, from their own perspective. And that's okay. You know, I would say, look at it from our perspective. We enjoy doing it. We have fun doing it. Of course, it would be written differently today because this is 2022. You know, we're going back to what, 19, uh, was it 80? 87. 87. So, come on, you know, look at, people would say with Sydney, uh, Lily's other field. Well, look at him. You know, that's kind of far fit. Look at when that was written. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's the times. And you know, a younger generation looking at it today, well, oh, what is that? You know, but it may not, there's some things like you look at some movies and you say, all right, well, that is a classic. Well, Star Trek is a classic, you know, Star Trek is here and every single one of the episodes has its own flavor to it. It sustains because it brings, it's different. Every time it's something different and other shows have stolen from it. So whether people want to admit it or not, people have taken from our episode and created something else, you know, uh, that they feel people will uh, will, will appeal to, to the audience. They've taken from Rottenberry's uh, Code of Honor. You know, so there are bits and pieces, whether people, you know, they criticize it, they critique it, or they praise it. Um, they've learned, they've learned from it, and they've used it. Some people have, so... You know, I love your take on it. And that's like I said, this is why I wanted to get you here because, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you these questions and I, I appreciate your openness about this. But, you know, bottom line, Carol, I mean, people call this like the worst episode of Star Trek ever. Is it the worst episode of Star Trek ever? No, it's the best. <laughs> it's one of the best. Um, you know, like I said, you have an all black planet. How many times are you going to see an all black planet? Yeah. You know, how many times are you going to see a queen of an all-black planet? Have you, you know, you tell me, you know, uh, and she's in control, you know, you tell me, you know, is it the worst episode? Um, I don't feel it is. Uh, I thought it was one of the best. And a lot of times people, they look at it from, Closed minds, you know, people aren't, I don't think people still today, uh, many aren't ready for uh, interracial 
relationships or they're not ready for a woman being in control or they're not ready for uh, black people owning you know an entire planet or their own land or their own property or things you know they're just not ready and they'll never be ready so yeah of course people are gonna say oh it's gonna it's the worst because they're not ready <laughs> oh good answer carol i appreciate all that and uh you know i hope this isn't like you know me throwing any poop or any, you know being negative or anything at you so you no know, just... you know i've heard it before and i just let it go you know because I thought Jim Roddenberry did something wonderful. Uh, he opened the doors for uh, many of us, you know, many uh, black actors, and uh, showed people what we can do, you know, and very uplifting man. So I respected what his work. He wrote it, he wrote it, and he was. Uh, genius of his time you know so you can't you can't deny that so if you could now let's say you know here in 2022 if you could bring Yurina back what mm-hmm. would you like to see for her happen like like let's say Yurina shows up in star trek picard season three what do you want to have happen for her character oh man uh gee that she helps to bring peace to the chaos that's going on in the world. And she helps people to see that we are all one, that we, and in the midst of the chaos, we can take whatever pain we're going through and get through it without any uh, animosity or hatred towards others. And for those, I would say Irina would be a type that would, um, yeah, just bring world peace. You know, she would be that type of person. I feel like just from getting to know you this last hour or so that, you know, Irina is very much a real deep part of who you are. I mean, do you feel like a real connection to this character? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Irina, you know, Irina will always be with me um, because uh, fans like you, will always let me, uh, let Yurina live, you know? It's like, I could be busy doing something and then there's a fan that'll say, hey, you know? <laughs> it's, I didn't realize it. I just didn't realize that people really, it's not that people, you know how you could watch a film and you go away and you say, oh, I really like that? Well, fans, Star Trek fans, really love Star Trek. You know, there's a bond there. I mean, it's not like, oh yeah, that's Star Trek. They really, they really love Star Trek and they love you. You know, it's not like, ah, that's just a character. No. I mean, they really look for me. Like you said, you've been looking for me for a long, you know, for a while. And yeah, when I go to a convention, it's like, ah, you know, wow, for years, you know, <laughs> so they, it's nice. Yeah, yeah, it's like everybody wants to insult the episode, but as soon as Carol Selman shows up at a Comic-Con, you know they're going to be lining up for you. Yeah, they they just, <laughs> they love me. They, oh, I love your character, I love your character. 
So that's one good thing. They love my character, so. I read somewhere that, uh, you know, many, many years after this episode aired, uh, that you had worked at the Star Trek experience in Las Vegas. Is that true? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. What, yeah. What did you do there? Uh, actually, I worked, um, I was one of the officers. Oh, so you got to wear a Starfleet uniform. Yeah, I did. I got to wear a uniform. Yeah. And uh, it was nice because, you know, I would being people aboard and working. It was at the Hilton, you know, and Star Trek, the experience. It was fun. It was it was a lot of fun. It was different, of course, from being the queen, you know, but being uh, one of the officers, the fleet officers, it was it was nice. And I was right there, you know, uh, on the Enterprise, and we were sitting, and we were able to sit, you know, and pretend like we were flying and taking people on down and uh, beaming, putting launching, you know, they would we would take them and have them launch them off into. They would get off and think they were actually, you know, on, on the Starfleet. So it was different. It was acting. You know, it was it was just acting. It was like being on stage again, so it was fun. I mean, I wish I could have gone to it. Uh, I was probably too young. I never got to go, no, because I was a little itty-bitty Matthew at that point. But it sounded like it was so much fun. And I mean, I've seen, like, menus they had for, like, you know, Quark's Promenade or Bar whatever, and, like, all the different Star Trek-themed foods and drinks. We got to do that. We got to eat. I remember we were the first ones to to taste the food and everything. And you would have loved it. You would have had so much fun. There was – it was – be so interesting because people would be beamed aboard. The way they were beamed aboard, they put them on this elevator and they thought they were actually going up beaming, beaming them. So the door would open and I would, you know, we would be there and, you know, greeting them on the Starfleet. And we had to stay in character because some people would be dressed, you know, just like, you know, the characters. And they would be... Uh, speaking of the Klingon, you know, the, the, there yeah. would be the Klingon and they would be speaking the language and everything. So we had to stay in character. Little bitty kids, you know, dress. It was so cute. It was it was really nice. So, I would have been one of those kids for sure. I would have been like, ooh, ooh, yeah. It would have been me. Been, yeah, you could have been there because they were, the little kids were there and they were dressed in a little, you know, outfits and everything. Huh. Yeah. Your parents uh, just didn't bring you, yeah. I don't even know if I knew it existed, to be honest, back then. I mean, now I'm looking back at it, and I'm like, man, I wish I knew about that when I was younger, but I probably wouldn't even be able to appreciate it, you know. As an adult, I would have been all over it. Now, you know, they need to bring oh, it back. Yeah, so they need you to probably do. would have been there every night. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. But that's that's really cool that you know, your, your Star Trek story did continue, and you got to also wear the Starfleet uniform. So that's, that's a really exciting way to kind of keep that story going. Yeah, I did. So, you know, I, I know you've done a lot of different things throughout your career, but I'm curious, you know, what is Carol doing these days? What am I doing? Well, I just left my agent, so I'm looking for a new agent. So if anybody, hey, yeah, looking for a new agent. Uh, I like writing, and guess what I like to write? I like to write science fiction. So <laughs> I'm doing that right now. I finished one screenplay, so I'm working on another one. So basically, that's what I'm doing right now, you know, and looking for work, you know, so. So if any reps or agents are listening to this episode, find Carol. You need to get her. <laughs> yeah, Matthew, you're right. <laughs> of course I'm right. No, I know this. Yeah, come on. <laughs> so, Carol, I got a few last questions for you here. So we're going to do a little bit of a lightning round, let's call it. So I'm going to throw out a few things. Don't think too hard. You got to answer right away. So oh, let's start things off here. 
best gig you ever had and worst gig you ever had? <laughs> best gig, um, I like doing piece of the action. Yeah. That was fun. What made it so fun? Sending for it here. Yeah, that's that's fair enough, yeah. <laughs> worst gig, um I did when I did some background work. Um when I first came out and it was cold out. So that was one of the worst gigs I ever had. <laughs> How about a moment from your performing career that was the most challenging at the time for you, but ultimately became the most rewarding? Um, I would say Star Trek. Yeah, Star Trek. When I had to do that fight scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was challenging. And it was very rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, very how about uh, most valuable piece of advice that someone ever gave you that you still think about today? Oh, um, I guess I have to say what my father said. You know, it's like when you get older, I was young and I asked him, um, I had to make a decision uh, about what my mom wanted and what he wanted. And he said, you know, when you get older, then you'll be able to make your own decision. So I would say parents, um, don't force anything on your children. You know, give them a chance to grow and they'll blossom into something beautiful. All right, good piece of advice there. And uh, last question for today, Carol. What's the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Everything. <laughs> Everything. Everything. People like you. People like you, Matthew. Oh, thank you. That's the perfect answer. <laughs> so, yeah, Carol, you know, thank you so much for chatting today with us about all this, uh, you know, different things you've done throughout your career and especially the Star Trek stuff. And, you know, I, I was so worried doing this interview also because, again, we're talking about an episode that a lot of folks don't look at in the most positive light. Uh, and that's why I wanted to get to the bottom of it. That's why I wanted to talk to you about this, because I knew you were going to have a different perspective about it. And I'm so happy you gave us that perspective. You're such a ray of light also. So really, uh, it's been wonderful to chat with you, get to know you, and especially to hear your take on this episode of Star Trek. Thank you. It was so nice of you to invite me on your podcast. And you're a beautiful person, excellent personality. So it's easy, easy interview. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this, keeping us alive. So that's great. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. 
promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms, is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network, and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.